0: I pray, Holy Spirit, over these next half an hour, that you would speak to us in ways that are not only profound, but profoundly revelational Mm -hmm. to us this day, this week, and our future. We pray that in Jesus' name. All God's people, said. Amen. 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 Good. So John chapter 8, let's go there. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 1, it says, and we're reading in the, the Passion Translation, it says that Jesus, okay, pause. The end of chapter 7, well, all of chapter 7, just a quick review. Jesus is going all around Judea and, and Galilee in that area up north. It comes time for the Feast of Tabernacles. He's with his brothers, and his brothers are putting pressure on him to go to Jerusalem and show off all your stuff and get a big crowd and become famous and powerful. And Jesus basically says to them, nope. I'm not going to do that. My time for unveiling is not at hand, he says. And he sends his brothers off to the, to the festival by themselves. It's the first time probably in his life that he's ever done that. They've been doing it since he was probably 12 years old. and Three times a year to go to these major festivals, which is required by Jewish law. So Jesus already is kind of coloring outside the lines, as they say. He's doing it different. They go down to Jerusalem without him. He takes a back route and doesn't go and do anything at at the in Jerusalem or at the temple for half of the festival, which is seven days, actually eight days from Sabbath to Sabbath. It says that halfway through the festival, Jesus pops up in the temple and starts (coughs) teaching. And he starts teaching some amazing things. He taught and fought. So he's teaching the Bible, but he's also fighting with the Pharisees and the religious rulers. So there's this kind of back and forth. Through all of chapter 7, we find that different parts of the crowd are highlighted. So part of the time, he's highlighting the people, and they're either understanding or desire for that, and then confusion, who is this guy, etc., etc. And then the other part of it is the Pharisees and the religious rulers. And he's fighting. They're fighting with him, and they're going back and forth. And so 7... Chapter 7 is really an interesting chapter back and forth. All the way to the point where they're trying to arrest him, they want to kill him, etc., etc. Then it says in verse 2, the next verse, Then at dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts again. So he leaves the temple court, goes up to the Mount of Olives, kind of gets rested and, you know, talks to the Father, Holy Spirit, who knows exactly what's going on. But knowing that he's going to come back to the temple, and how many of you think that it's going to, be a very similar situation than what he left the day before. Right? Do you get the feeling the Pharisees and the scribes and all that stuff have have gone home and gone, you know what? I think Jesus is right. He is the Son of God. His Father is God. Yeah, we had it all wrong. Let's go apologize to him tomorrow. (laughs) Right? You don't get the feeling any of that's happening. Like, if anything, as we get into this story, it looks like uh, have you ever heard that phrase when it comes to gambling, you double down, right? It looks like the Pharisees and the te- are doubling down on really trying to trip up Jesus and trick him and, and get him into something. And so it says, verse two, then at dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts again. And then listen to this. And soon all the people gathered around to listen to his words. All the people. As we're going to see here in the next verse, there's a difference between the people and the Pharisees, or the teachers of the law, and the religious people. How many you think that maybe Jesus had a soft spot in his heart for the people? Mm-hmm. We see this a lot, right? When he's up on the hill, and he's healing people, and he's teaching and doing all that. And then these ding Pharisees come, and they kind of mess everything up, right? But Jesus is really pouring his heart out to the people. It says at one point, when he comes up to Jerusalem, and he looks... He actually weeps for Jerusalem. He weeps for the people. He weeps for the situation in life that they're in. And so you get this really cool picture. He's in the temple. Now, mind you, this is the day after the festival. Because in chapter 7, it says, on the greatest day, the last day, he stands up and gives his rivers of living water coming out of your spirit sermon in chapter 7. So this obviously is after that. It's probably the next day. So there's still a bunch of people in Jerusalem from after the thing. they're there. They want to actually hear. And so he gathered around to listen to his words, so he sat down and taught them. I think Jesus probably enjoyed it a lot. You just get that when you listen to some of his sermons trying to help the people, love the people. he's just, "These people are hungry. And I feel like it's a word to us, actually. God loves hungry people. Bill Johnson has a whole teaching and I love, and he talks about this, that in the natural, you wait for hunger, and then you get satisfied. You go and eat a sandwich or do whatever. But he says in the spiritual realm, it's a little bit different, that when you, when you eat spiritual food, it actually creates more hunger for spiritual food. And then if you eat that food, it creates more hunger and more hunger. Have you found this to be true? Like, like sometimes, and I, I've been getting this a lot lately, I've been really digging into my Bible, and I'll be going back and forth between my Passion Translation and, the, and my NIV that I've had for years, Study Bible, and I find myself going, I don't want to do anything else except get, get back into my Bible. you find this to be true? The more you eat... Of the spirit, the more hungry you get for the spirit, it's it's kind of the opposite in the, in the natural. And so these people are hungry, and he's and he loves teaching hungry people. But <laughs> everybody say dun dun dun. <laughs> Here come the bad guys again. <laughs> Verse three. So you get this picture: Jesus is gotten refreshed on the Mount of Olives. He comes back to the temple, sees a bunch of people. They all say, hey, we, we want to know more. And so he sits down. He starts teaching them. It's this really cool, hungry moment. And it says in verse 3, Then, in the middle of his teaching, the religious scholars and the Pharisees broke through the crowd. So, <laughs> you know the word obnoxious? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I kind of get that picture. Like these obnoxious, they got all the gowns and all the, all the flactories and all the, the Jewishness and all this stuff. And we're important. <laughs> it's kind of like, have you ever seen uh, a military person who wears all their medals, even when they don't need to? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like they're just so this is kind of the Jewish people. They they have the, the priests, they got all their stuff and they're pushing through the crowd, you know, like get get out of the way. We're way way more important than you guys, you know. They show up in the middle of the teaching, they show up, they break through the crowd, and they brought a woman who had been caught in the act of committing adultery, and made her stand in the middle of everyone. Now Okay, what's your first thoughts when you hear, when you hear that sentence? Like, that's a, that's a loaded sentence right there, isn't it? There's a lot there. What's your first? Well, okay, we'll get to that in a second. But you're right. But here we got this woman and these Pharisees and these and they drag her into the temple. Now, mind you, the temple is not this little thing. The temple is huge. And Jesus probably is off in this huge corner of it doing his teaching like he would do with a big crowd, and all of a sudden, have you ever been embarrassed for something that you absolutely don't want anybody to to know or be aware of your failure? Now, I'm not even the misadultery thing. That's way out there. But there's other times, like, you ever... Okay, I don't think any of my kids are listening right now, but several of my preteen and teenage kids um, have discovered the joy of acne mm-hmm. and uh, you know if one of them gets a zit or something they just don't want to you know, let anybody to see it and they're just really cautious and makeup and just cover you know like, like there's just things in our life that we would rather only we know about and nobody else even in the area of sin would you agree like if you have a sin or something you did or made a mistake you don't want the whole world can you imagine I mean it doesn't say she's She's guilty. They caught her in the act. And they're dragging her through the whole temple into this huge crowd where Jesus is teaching. Could you just say horrible? Horrible. I mean, even, even, I'm not going to say even if, she is guilty. But that is just a horrible, horrible situation. Okay, so a couple of my questions are things like this. Of course, the obvious, you know, how did that happen, blah, blah, blah. Was this planned? So like, did the Pharisees go, hmm, you know, I think we might have a, let's see if we can figure this out, blah, blah, blah. You know, was it planned? Had they been scheming? It seems like a lot of work to get this situation perfect and this woman there right at that time. Do you know what I'm saying? So let let me just read a couple of things. So, Let's read a couple verses, and then I want to take you to the Old Testament where we actually get the mosaic make law for this. They said, verse 4, Then they said to Jesus, so here we got this woman. Who knows, is she covered with a robe? Does she hardly have any clothes? You know what I mean? Like, oh, just scorn and ridicule and shame is just oozing all over this story. Right? (coughs) Horrible. Then they said to Jesus, Teacher, we caught this woman listen to this, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Doesn't Moses' law command us to stone to death a woman like this? Tell us, what do you say we should do with her? Okay. So, let's just, by way of making sure we're all on the same page, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 says, (laughs) if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. They're not messing around, right? No, very, strict. very strict. A lot of these rules and laws. Moses, Mosaic law to these slaves coming out of Egypt with a lot of Egyptian influence. So God is really trying to make sure. So then, but it's not only that, it's in Deuteronomy as well. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. Then both of them (laughs) shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Okay, pretty straightforward pretty strict, and definitely not leaving much gray area if, if this is really true and if it really happened, right? Yeah. Why, why the distinction of married women? Hmm. I don't know. But adultery has to do with people that are married engaging with stuff outside their marriage, right? Otherwise, it's just lustful uh, behavior or, you know, Whatever. So I don't know exactly, but I do know this. By the very nature of what the Pharisees say, she's caught in the act of adultery. So that is the sin, and we see this is the punishment. What's missing between the Mosaic Law and where we are? I I highlighted it, I think you did too. What's missing? The man. man. Do you ever kind of just scratch your head sometimes or go, hmm... Well, you know, that's weird. Like, when I, whenever I read this story, I never really thought of that part of it. Yeah. But, and I get, like, my, my daughter Sydney is a very woman, you know, I am woman, hear me roar kind of thing. Like, sh- she reading this verse, that was the first thing she picked up on. Where's the man? Why is it the man? What's Why is it just the woman? You know, like, I'm like, I'm with you, babe. Yeah, I don't know, you know. But here's an interesting thing. Let me just read. This is from uh, a commentary that I was reading. And just because I'm like, I'm like you, what is the cultural context? Why, why is there not a man here? And what could, is there something else that could be going on? So let me just read this. Jewish law carefully stipulated what evidence needed to be in hand for the judgment of adultery. Okay. No execution was possible without a solid case. So in other words, the, 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 handing down of this law and the way that it was handled wasn't haphazard or, oh, I think she might have, whatever, let's go throw rocks at her. No, no. They really had to have a high standard for what the case was, what the evidence was. Before we're going to kill somebody with stones, which is horrible, we better make sure this is really what go- went on. Okay? Are you with me? So th- that part is cool. Hence, the Sanhedrin, which is the, re- the religious court of the, of the priests and ru- uh, people at that time, the sanhedrin records, records indicate judges who would even demand to know the color of the sheets on the bed so in other words if you know like they they really want all the details they want to know everything that happened you know and even to the point of some judges saying what was the color of the sheets and what was you know what time of day was it? like they want all the evidence to make sure they get it right the law even distinguished intercourse from preliminary sexual contact. And so it's not, you know, it's it has to be the act. And if they're just kind of messing around or kissing hug, huggy face or whatever, that's not enough. It's got to be the actual thing. So there, there's a distinction even there. This extensive demand for evidence made adultery charges rare in Judaism since couples would naturally take precautionary measures to conceal themselves. So you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, If we're going to mess around, we better make sure, you know, like it was very cautionary. It was very, and so hence, because of the demand for the high evidence and all that, it was rare. It was very rare. But listen to this. However, the law was aware of men who, rather than divorce their wives for an illicit affair, chose to have her set up with witnesses for execution. Example, if a man thus executed his wife, he became heir to her property, but not if he divorced her. You see the difference? So if I get her killed by setting her up with adultery, I get to keep all the stuff. (laughs) But if I divorce her, I don't get her family stuff. So for a horrible, awful, greedy man, this setting up someone for adultery would make a lot of sense. But this self-interest was deemed morally wrong, and if witnesses viewed preliminary things going on, they were obliged to interrupt the act and prevent the greater crime. And so there was this laws, of even for people, you, if you see something like this happening, you have to you have to step in. Right. So it's not just the judges and the priests and stuff. It was regular people who are supposed to, in other words, if you see somebody starting to sin of any kind, you're supposed to, you know, let's step in and say, hey, you probably shouldn't shoplift, you know, or whatever, or shoplift this guy's wife. You know, you shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't do that. Don't take what's not yours, okay? Uh, let me go on. If, we, if, as we suggest, a man has discharged his wife thus, meaning he set her up for the adultery to have her killed, that whole thing, an engineered testimony caught in the act to execute her without warning her, the entire affair may appear legal but reeks of injustice. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Like, even if it's legal, still is just reeks of injustice, right? In Jesus's eyes, the entire situation would have been reprehensible. (coughs) So again, we don't know exactly all the details, but if there's witnesses catching them in the act and then they drag her out, like, it almost feels like the witnesses were there waiting for her to do this thing and the minute she did, they grab her, drag her out and bring her, to bring her out in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. It feels a little bit like that, doesn't it? Because if you've caught them in the act and you have witnesses, you know, you're not just talking about a drive-by, you're talking about something a little more intentional. Crazy, right? Yeah, that's horrible on every scene but where is the man in this scenario? <sighs> kind of, if you will, using the same phrase, reeks of injustice as well. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes, it says here that they were scribes, which means that was the legal judicial wing of the priests, if you will, the scribes. They weren't just copying stuff down. It was actually they were the ones that knew the law and would help the other priests act out the law so the scribes were kind of more of the nerdy <laughs> they would have had pencil protectors on their on their robes you know mm-hmm. now obviously we know this whole thing is just a setup and it's to try to trap Jesus because it goes on and says in verse 6 of John chapter 8 they were only testing Jesus because they hoped to trap him with his own words and accuse him of breaking the law of Moses okay so their intentions are laid bare here by John as he writes this. They're only trying to trap him. Now we've seen this, and we're going to see this a few more times in the Gospels, right? Remember the thing where they come to Jesus and they give him a coin and they say, you know, what should we do with taxes and blah, blah, blah? And he says what? Whose Render to Caesar. what is Yeah, yeah whose face is on it? Render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. And then it was like, uh, that's a good answer. I'm going to walk away now. You know, kind of thing. Well, we find the same thing kind of developing here. They're trying to test Jesus. They're trying to set a trap for him. And here's another thing I never thought of until just this week. There's another whole part to this that is really interesting. Because remember, when they set Jesus up with the coin, when we set Jesus up with the coin, they were trying to catch him not only with the the tithe, but with the what? The Romans, right? But well, you know that there's actually something here with that? And if they accuse him of, of, no, don't kill her, then they can say he doesn't believe in the Mosaic law, right? right? But if Jesus says yes to you should, if Jesus says yes, kill her, what can they do? They can go to the Romans and say, look, he's an agitator. He's talking about killing Jews. We can't kill him. You know, because of our law, but, you know, he's he's making trouble. He's saying kill people, and you Roman says we can't do it. <laughs> right? So there's kind of a Jewish-Roman thing going on here, too. But the next words, John says, but Jesus didn't answer them. That situation was charged, wasn't it? mm mm-hmm. Like this woman dragged in, and they're trying to learn from Jesus, and they guys drag him in, and, you know, we're we're, we're in this place of uh, of just absolute weirdness. It almost begs that Jesus should say something here, doesn't it? And you guys have been on this planet long enough, and I have too. Sometimes the best answer is no, no answer, right? Boy, when we talk about walking by the Spirit, that's really important, isn't it? if I was to ask you a question, how many of you have opened your mouth when you probably shouldn't have? Would <laughs> Raise your hand. Right? I just think it's, the whole moment is kind of pregnant with the pause. You know what I mean? Like there's just all this weight and they're just like, nothing. We don't even know how long he waited. But we do know this. It was long enough that they started getting perturbed. He was quiet long enough that it says in verse 7, angry, they kept insisting that he answer their question. What did that sound like, I wonder? I'm, you know, I'm sure they weren't talking with kindness. They weren't, you know what I'm saying? I bet you they were just, you know, barking at him and yelling. And all the people were like, whoa, you know, what's going on? And, and the other thing I thought was this. I thought about this Poor woman. Wow, can you imagine standing there, sitting there, and just waiting, and the shame, and the ridicule? (laughs) It was horrible. So they insisted that he answer the question. They kept doing that. So Jesus stood up. Now, mind you, this whole time, he's been sitting and teaching. Remember from the beginning, verse 2, I think, they all came around, verse 3, they all come around. And he's just sitting there. Finally, he stands up. And he looks at him and says, Let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. Lustful thoughts is a pretty easy thing for men to do. Right? Women are wired a little bit different. There's, you know, there's always some of this going on back and forth and different reasons. But... You know, that idea that a man would be standing there, even a priest or a ruler or a scribe, and not have had some immoral thoughts of some kind or another, slim to none, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus knows. Jesus knows their minds. He knows what's going on. Right, so many Bibles and your versions will use the word, he who has not sinned cast the first stone. Mm -hmm. Well, the word in the Greek... Uh, which is what John was written in. And anamartitas, I think is how you say it. It means more than simply sin. So that word that's used there in the Greek actually is translated a sinful desire. So it has to do with desire, not just a sin of some kind. It has to do with this desire. And so he says, he who has uh, not sinned cast the first stone." Now, mind you, I think we, I think we read this. <laughs> But Jesus didn't answer them. Instead, he simply bent down and wrote in the dust with his finger. So he bends down, starts writing in the, in the sand in the finger. They keep getting angry at him because he's not answering them the way they wanted. And what's the question? If Jesus bends down and, and draws something in the sand, how many of you ever had the question? <laughs> what's he writing? Sometimes the Bible can be very frustrating, can it? Like, don't you totally want to know what he wrote in the sand? But he purposely doesn't. And I don't know why, but I do think it has something to do with the words that proceed from his mouth after he writes in the sand. Right? So he's writing in the sand, and then he says, Let, let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire to throw the first stone at her. Okay. So, again, just real quick, there's a lot of verses in Scripture that talk about, uh, like Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 1 says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Again, this is kind of a side note, but for all of you that have been around planet Earth for a while, you've heard that phrase, judge not, lest you be judged. And the inference is, don't judge other people. Some of you know that's not what this verse is saying. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say don't judge for the sake of not judging. It says don't judge hypocritically. For the way you judge, did you catch that? For in the way you judge, that's how you're going to be judged. So in other words, don't call someone a liar if you're a liar. Right? And on and on it goes. Obviously, in this case, Jesus is saying, look, you're having lustful thoughts. You have sinful desires, and here you are judging this woman for having sinful desires. But then also in Romans, uh, in Romans chapter two, verse one, he says, "You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things." So we find this, you know, kind of equal justice under the law from the Old Testament. We find it with Jesus in the Gospels and we find it with Paul writing in Romans, right? And so I read in, in one of the commentaries it was interesting, it said this. It says, Jesus doesn't condone her sin but draws her accusers into their circle of condemnation. It's really good, isn't it? Jesus doesn't condone her sin. He doesn't say your sin's okay but he, he does draw... The accusers into their circle of condemnation. That's really wise, isn't it? He writes in the dirt, he doesn't say anything, he writes in the dirt, stands up, says, If you haven't had sinful desires, or whatever, he who hasn't had, you throw the first stone. Then he kneels back down, it says in verse eight, and then he bent over again and wrote some more words in the dust. And we're still asking the same question, aren't we? What is he writing in the dust? What is he doing? So I have a theory. You want to, you want to hear it? So. All right. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's possible. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, there's this verse. It says this. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Now, a couple of things on this. What just happened towards the end of chapter 7 in the temple the day before? Jesus stands up and says, All you thirsty ones, come to me. I am the spring of life. I am the water of life, right? Out of you will flow. You come to me, flows rivers of... Li- so he's talking about this springs of living water and all this stuff. Contrasted to, now he's over, and Jeremiah says, those who turn away from the Lord will be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So you're almost like, okay, spring of living water and dust. Like There's this connection. So um, there are some, and I, I, I don't know, I, I can't really say for sure, but it's possible that he was writing Jeremiah 17:13 in the dirt, you know, as he's talking to them, saying, "Hey, you guys are totally out of whack and names being written to dust because you've forsaken the Lord." I don't know. Maybe he was writing their names. Yeah, because truth is powerful, but to the sinful, truth is painful, right? What if they were getting exposed, if you will, in the dirt that day by what he was writing? Thoughts. Upon hearing that, her accusers slowly left the crowd one at a time. The Aramaic translates this, can be translated, starting with the priests. (laughs) Have you ever, like, seen that thing in movies or cartoons where if somebody does something wrong and they're like... A whistling is like, okay, um, just, oh, look at, oh, gee, look at the time. <laughs> they just kind of start, and you can almost imagine it, right, from the, well, it says right here, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, with the convicted conscience. That is powerful, isn't it? And the oldest, probably because they probably had the most <laughs> sin, because they had more time on this planet to do more things, you know. I still don't know how that woman ended up there. You know, in other words, you know, did the priest set it up? Was this literally? I mean, if they're willing to kill Jesus and do this whole thing with Judas and the money and all that, they're willing to do anything to bring this guy down. They're certainly willing to set up a woman for adultery and maybe working with a man who's trying to get his wife killed so he can keep all her money, you know, that whole thing. I don't know. just reeks. It just reeks reeks of, of injustice and and and, ho- and horrible nature of mankind. And yet they all begin to just drift away. And it, it's interesting. The verse 9 says, upon hearing that her accusers slowly left the crowd. So like, how did they come into the crowd in the beginning? through breaking through the crowd full of righteous indignation and full of all this accusations but they leave a totally different totally different way don't they instead of all the arrogance and all pride they kind of slither off if you will into the crowd and it's interesting because it doesn't say that the crowd dispersed it only says that the accusers dispersed that means that the accusers were all standing there probably slack job just going what What just happened? This is crazy. And don't you think that there was probably more than one sinner in the crowd? So the sinners, you know, the Bible says that Jesus, what, came to seek and to save that which was lost. They may not have been the woman at the center of this thing, but they sure felt like it. Sin has a way of doing that, doesn't it? making bad choices, associating with the wrong people, and ending up possibly with shame and guilt and all that. So all the accusers filter off. The crowd is still there with the woman at the center. Until finally, verse 10, until finally Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there in front of him. Now, alone with the woman, I don't think that means the crowd is all dispersed. I think that, and it's possible, maybe they did, but it says the accusers slithered off, not the crowd. But you can imagine this kind of circle and that Jesus is alone with the woman. It had been all the accusers around her in Jesus' face. Now they're gone. And she says, he says, he's alone with her, still standing there in front of him. So he stood back up. Now mind you, he'd been drawn in the dust. So she's standing, he's kneeling. He Comes back out of the dust looks her in the eye and says, Dear woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? Again, I put myself in the place of that woman. I wonder what was going through her head. You know what I mean? (sighs) She probably was feeling pretty good as one after another of this crowd of accusers begins to slither off. You kind of get that feeling like, She's probably like, wait a minute, this is starting to feel pretty good. Do you know what I'm saying? He looks at her and says, dear woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? Looking around, she replied, I see no one, Lord. That word Lord in the the Aramaic, I think in the Greek as well, has to do with Lord, God, Lord. Not just Lord, like a master or some wealthy citizen or something like that. There's a, there seems to be a revelation that she has as she's going through this whole thing and looks at Jesus. She says, I see no one, Lord, God, Lord. There's something about you in this whole thing that feels divine. It feels pretty cool. Jesus said, then I certainly don't condemn you either. Go and from now on be free from a life of sin. Amen. What Many of the other versions say what go and Sin no more, right? There are certain words in the Bible that when they filter into your heart and your soul, it's, it's like a healing balm, isn't it? When you hear that and you see Jesus' response to this woman, there's a certain sense in all of us that, let's be honest, we all kind of deserve to be the woman in the middle of that circle. Right? Don't you think? I mean, depending on the situation and whatever it is we've done, we all feel that guilt and shame and and accusation. And you're, you're, I mean, here's a thought. Jerusalem, this is the day after the festival. So a lot of the people have probably left and started going home. It's chances are real good this woman is a Jerusalemite, right? So she probably knows all these people. You know what I'm saying? This isn't just like some random citizen. There's probably people in that crowd that know her. And yet Jesus looks at her and says, you know what? They're not condemning you. I don't condemn you. They're gone. Now, listen, it's really important. Go and sin no more. Don't, don't keep doing what you're doing because you're going to end up in the middle of the circle again. Hmm. In the Aramaic, it says, neither do I put you down. Or oppress you. I, I like the Aramaic a lot of times. The Aramaic Bible. Because it's written in the language they spoke. Do you know, So the, the, the awareness of this is not just go and sin no more. You know, like this kind of thing. It's more like, hey, listen. You've been oppressed by these knuckleheads. You've sinned. But I'm not going to oppress you. I'm not coming down on you the way they're coming down on you. I'm different. I don't put you down. So, interesting thing as we close today. I know it's, we're getting late. Do you know, in some of your Bibles, from verse chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, is there a disclaimer in any of your Bibles? Yeah. What does it say? In all the older manuscripts. Some of the manuscripts didn't have it. Right. mine says, the earliest manuscripts do not include Jesus' Okay, I mean, john seven fifty three through eight eleven okay, what do you think that is any any thoughts this story of the woman isn't in some of the earlier now it's in some of the manuscripts, but it's not in some of the other ones now how did you get manuscripts in those days? Did you cut and paste off Google <laughs> No, what? How did how did they how did you get one manuscript to another? You, wrote them, you wrote, them. wrote them. He he proposes that there were people that didn't think Jesus should let this woman go. In their well, that's why they didn't in it. their religiousness, <laughs> they said that much grace is too much. Cause you're like Jesus didn't come down hard enough on the woman for adultery. We can't have that in the Bible, so they just took it out. Interesting. <laughs> Saint Augustine, one of the early church fathers, mentioned this story and stated that many translators had removed it because they interpreted it as Jesus giving license to immorality. God's grace always seems to startle. The religious. <laughs> grace is scary, isn't it? See, that should give us pause. It really should give us pause. Because how many of you think that even in the church today, people struggle with grace? I mean, we say we're people of grace, but there are many times where grace doesn't really carry over from the church to people who have. I get it. But how many of you know that God's grace forgives oh. sin? <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? I just think it's crazy because a lot of people get turned off by the church by what? The church is so judgmental. Right? Did you ever read that book? Um, uh, remember the phrase we used to have the, the wristbands, what would Jesus do? There was a book called In His Steps, way back in the day. If you haven't read it, you absolutely don't need to go read it. Totally changed my life when I was in college. Like, it totally revolutionized a lot of my thinking. And the thing was, this bum walks in the church, like a, like a bum. He looked, he, and he basically stumbles to the front of the church, and he says this, you know, I, I'm not judging anybody, but well, what would Jesus do with me? <laughs> you know, and then, I think he dies, if I remember it, mm-hmm. in the story. And this whole church is just rocked by this phrase, what would Jesus do? How would he treat people? Well, in His story of this woman caught in adultery, I mean, that's just crazy to think of, caught in the, and it says, in the act of adultery. I mean, we're not talking about gossip or rumor or innuendo. We're talking about actual, if you will, physical evidence. And yet Jesus still says, I don't, I don't condemn you. I want you to be better. I want you to go and sin no more. And that kind of grace and love and mercy is actually hard to come by, isn't it? Yeah. But it's hard for us sometimes to give that kind of grace and mercy because why? How many of you know that justice and mercy are two parts of the scale, right? Like how many of you have a real big justice o <laughs> you ever get that? Like if the guy is speeding and passes you on the freeway, you really want him to get a ticket by the policeman mm-hmm. up ahead. You know what I'm saying? Like justice, that will be justice. You know? And yet mercy is this thing, and grace is, you know, it's hard to weigh these things out, isn't it, sometimes? God should be just. But if we're not careful, the justice of God, the punishment for sin, will supersede and go past the mercy and grace and love of God. Hmm. You know, we just took communion, right? And he shed his blood for the forgiveness or remission of sin. Sin. Not certain sins. <laughs> Not lesser sin. Sin. Here's that song we sing, Your grace is enough <laughs> for me. As we close, I just want I was just thinking, Jesus. Stands up and says to this woman, right? She says, Where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn? you?' She says, I see no one, Lord. Jesus said, Then I certainly don't condemn. You. Do you think when that woman was dragged into that circle that day, into that huge crowd, do you think she expected it to end like that? That's a surprise ending right there for her. And I, and I always, I, you know me, I like to put myself in and i wondering, as that woman rose to her feet, gathered the blanket around her or whatever, do you know that Jesus showed her not just love, but gave her hope, right? And gave her her dignity, if you will. And I'm sure there's still going to be ramifications for her, but Do you ever have a really good time with the Lord or maybe you're at a service or have just worshiped with a song and it just, oh, it just feels divine. It feels so personal and so powerful. I just wonder how that woman felt as she walked home. She didn't expect grace, but she got it, amen? So why don't we stand? I'm going to pray for you as we go.